Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to my podcast. It means the world to me. Uh, to start off the episode, I'd like to do a little shout out to one of my classmates who uh, let me know that she's actually been listening to every single episode of That Anthro Podcast, which truly warms my heart. She's a fellow anthropology major. I'm just so happy to hear that. So Esther, you're awesome. Moving on to something that I've mentioned in the past two episodes, which is that I am currently hosting a fundraising campaign for the Santa Barbara Humane Society. Now, the Santa Barbara Humane Society rescues dogs and cats from the streets, um, taking, you know, uh, rescues. And so I'll have the link for the campaign, the GoFundMe, where 100% of the funds go straight to the Santa Barbara Humane Society. You know, I have the link in my Instagram bio for the podcast, but I'll also have it linked in the description below. And, you know, it would really mean a lot if you could consider sharing or donating to this fundraising campaign. I adopted my dog, Daisy, from the Santa Barbara Humane Society and was just overwhelmed and overjoyed by the experience I had with them and the care that they provided for Daisy. I even took her back there for training classes And I was actually really worried that she may have some negative connotations going back to the place where I adopted her from when, you know, in reality, the day we went back, she, it had only been about a month or two since I adopted her. She remembered the people that were there and they remembered her and, you know, they got to pet her and say hello. And it was actually such a, such a wonderful experience. So if you could consider helping donate to save some animals' lives, I'd truly appreciate it. You can check out the link in the episode notes or in my Instagram bio, or you can reach out to me if you need the link. Now, uh, now that we got that out of the way, this week's episode is another exciting one. We're celebrating Women's History Month by interviewing two members of the uh, Association of Feminist Anthropologists, which is a subsect of the American Anthropological Association, which I partner with. They got me in touch with these two wonderful ladies, uh, Dr. Michelle Ramirez and Dr. Shimasi Basu. So without further ado, let's hear all about all things AFA, Women's History Month, feminism, and the women who continue to inspire us today, including a good old shout out to RBG. And now a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to both Dr. Srimati 
Basu and Dr. Michelle Ramirez. I'm so excited to have you both here today. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to record with me. And, you know, we can kind of continue to celebrate Women's History Month in this episode, which is really fun. Um, so I'll kind of let each of you briefly introduce yourself. So Dr. Ramirez, we can start with you. Could you explain a bit about your background and where you currently work and are conducting research? Oh, yes. Thank you. And thank you again, Gabby, so much for the opportunity to do this. This is very exciting. Um, I am a medical anthropologist uh, with public health training. Um, I have a PhD in anthropology and a master's in public health. Um, and my early research was in Oaxaca, Mexico on uh, menopause, um, the social constructions and meanings of, of menopause. Um, and during, during my postdoc, I, I definitely got more involved in public health research um, and looked at issues of cancer survivorship. Um, but um, I'd say the, the thing that kind of unifies all of my disparate areas of research is a concern about gender and health. Um, and more recently, uh, I've been uh, conducting research in Oaxaca, Mexico on Pentecostal healing and how Pentecostalism intersects with gender relations in, in Mexico. Um, there's been this wonderful body of feminist work done on evangelical Pentecostal movements in Latin America and whether or not it's a good thing for women or not a good thing for women. And uh, of course, it's a very complicated story. Mm -hmm. And my, um, my work focuses on healing and how practices of healing uh, mediate whether or not women find it appealing to be involved in, in the Pentecostal uh, movement. Um, and I have a, a book under review right now, um, oh, a book, a manuscript under review right now called um, uh, A Bit of Shameless Self-Promotion. Um, oh, <laughs> that's what the podcast is here for. <laughs> Healing Gender, Healing Mexico, Pentecostal Expansion in Oaxaca de Juarez. Um, I've been doing this research. It's a longitudinal project. I've been doing this research for about eight years, um, and I've sort of expanded that research into Latinx populations in mm. the U.S. looking at um, Pentecostal healing. So that is a little bit about me. I love that. Um, so Pentecostal is actually a new word to me. Would you mind um, further explaining what that is? Oh, sure, sure, Gabby. Yes, so Pentecostalism is, is um, generally associated with um, a very um, conservative, evangelical, uh, Christian religious tradition. Um, it's, it's a very um, uh, uh, mystical um, sort of uh, religion. They believe in gifts from the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and it's a very can be a very ecstatic kind of service when you when you go to a Pentecostal service it can be a very like people falling on the ground and weeping mm. and it, it can be a very um, uh, very um, embodied intense sensory experience um, and quite often it's it's very much aligned with very socially conservative um, ideas about, about, about the family and about women mm -hmm. and about gender. Um, but um, it's my, my former advisor, Ellen Lewin has done work with a 
um, an African-American church that's folk, that is Pentecostal, but that is all about radical acceptance of different genders and um, different um, identities. So I'd love to look at that Pentecostal, that yeah. branch of Pentecostalism, but the one I've been focused on is very conservative, very socially conservative. That, thank you for that. That, that yeah. makes sense, you know, in that area of Mexico, there is quite, you know, quite a bit of that conservative, those conservative mm -hmm. ideals. Very, it sounds like a very fascinating project. I'll make sure, I always do this um, for our listeners, but I'll have all of their, their currently published works linked below for, for both Michelle and Shimati, so you can, you know, check out, check out their work. But um, now let's, let's move on to Dr. Basu. Uh, what are your areas of research and where are you currently teaching? So I teach at the University of Kentucky and I teach, in a, you know, my, um, I have a kind of a joint appointment in anthropology and gender and women's studies, but um, my primary line is located in gender and women's studies, right? So much of my undergraduate teaching are GWS courses and then I cross list a number of those uh, uh, anthro courses. I'm sort of an anthropologist of the state and of law, but I also because of the, the part, the um, the sort of subset of that or the parallel interest of that for me is to work on kinship and, you know, sort of marriage by default and the way in which marriage is tied to the distribution of resources, maybe. That's one way of describing it, right? Like, you know, when we practice, what's your elevator pitch? One of my colleagues, they, like, we worked on it. It's like law, violence, kinship, marriage, perhaps. Somewhere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I would say another, um, I've, I've come to realize that one of the things I've worked on, you know, across my various projects, I like how Michelle brought that together, um, is that I kind of study feminism as an object, right? And in particular, I'm interested in feminist legal reform, right? What, so specifically, uh, what happens to laws after they're put on the books, right? What happens, you know, this is the cultural question, right? So there's a law, there's, you know, we know that, um, feminist legal reform has, of course, been a big thing in the U.S., but it's actually been a huge global phenomenon since, uh, depending on who and how we are counting, you can say since the 70s and the U.N. decade for women since 1975, or you can say there's been plenty of organizing, you know, since the 19th century in the context of decolonization, all of that. Um, so, but what happens to those laws once they leave, you know, our, our, uh, you know, our energetic discussions, once they become policy, um, I mean, there's a shift, there's things unravel actually between when you imagine them and when they become policy, right? When they become law, after legislators argue about it and put things. But all the more, they become different when they go into culture, when people begin using them or avoiding them, right? So a kind of um, very basic principle of legal anthropology is to think about the fact that how a law is used, whether it's used, how we go around it, is to, it tells us some crucial things about culture, right? So um, in the course of this, so just to, to fast forward through my uh, life, <laughs> my research life, um, I think I started out by looking at a property law that was that had been on the books for mm -hmm. uh, a law of equal inheritance for uh, daughters and sons, uh, to see that in 30 years, hardly any daughters had uh, avail themselves of it. And in fact, their family, this is in India, uh, that this is in Delhi, actually, um, that hardly anybody uh, <clears throat> took advantage of it. And mostly uh, there was this discourse of, you know, um, daughters like to do this for their, uh, mm. you know, they know, mm. so that was it. 
But, you know, I really, I started out that project wanting to study courtrooms and how people behaved, you know, mm. what. So, um, so I kind of had that in mind. And when I wanted a new project, I started out by looking at family courts. So, you know, family courts are supposed to be a venue because law is supposed to be intimidating that uh, people would go in and uh, say their piece, right? So a feminist, the, the fam family courts were a feminist play, like mm. Um, mm. it's going to go better. Now only to find that it's not that simple, right? Law judges have their own ideas of power. Uh, representing yourself is not as um, empowering as you would think, right? Because you're actually speaking in a legal context. And um, so I, so that really interested me is to look mm -hmm. at what happened to, the, to mm -hmm. you know, the family court as a space. But also when I, so I went to uh, India at that time to look at family courts and hence ended up writing this ethnography of divorce. Um, and then I also began to see that in these divorce courts, there were constantly cases against domestic violence that they were a kind of way of negotiating economic rights in marriage or economic entitlements in marriage. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of, it, it became a broader study actually of how um, criminal law such as rape law and domestic violence are studied. And so mm -hmm. even more quickly, then I noticed these anti-feminist men's groups hovering around the edges of that. So I thought, mm -hmm. I want to know as an anthropologist how that feels, right? Yeah. So this has been really, we can maybe talk about this a little later, but I'll just tell you briefly that that's become a project of, you know, as an anthropological question, it's interesting. Like if it's a subject who makes you really uncomfortable slash um, you're sort of wondering what's going on because they are not, you know, they are the various categories of men who have actually sometimes come through really tough cases, right? But they are also um, avowedly and publicly anti-feminist, right? Mm. And so what does that mean mm. for me mm. to understand them ethnographically versus yeah. also have all the other things going in my head? So mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. where I am now. That's the book I have to write. Mm. Mm. That was all so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, just the justice system and how, like you were saying, even how judges really can, their interpretation of the law can really affect, you know, how a case goes. I've never thought of looking at it through that anthropological lens. And I think that's a very unique and very interesting point of view that you have. I definitely need to read read more of your work. I'm always, I always feel like every episode is just <laughs> me getting almost like the best homework of, oh gosh, now I need to, now I need to read even more about this, getting me interested in everything. So fascinating. Um, I, I just want to plug, I mean, whether you read my work or not, uh, I just want to plug you trying, just sitting in a courtroom at some point, mm, as, kind of, mm, you know, as a mm, portrait of culture. It's not, mm, a, you know, it's not a one-on-one mm -hmm. kind of -on -one accurate portrayal of the culture, right? We don't behave in a courtroom as we do in other places in real life, but it tells you something about the venue, it tells you something about the law. So it's very addictive. Yeah, it's like a, it's a real life courtroom drama, but you know, he, he, you're uh, studying humans in, in it. <laughs> yeah. So I had, I realized I didn't introduce this originally, but um, they are, both of these women are members of the American Feminist Association, which is a subsect of the American Anthropological Association. And, you know, that was part of the reason that we wanted to do this sort of 
episode focused on feminism and women's rights issues, you know, to celebrate um, Women's History Month. So a question that I had for both of you, because I just think it's fun. I like to to also emphasize the parts of our lives that are outside of the science, you know, because it, it makes our work more impactful for people. I just really wanted to hear a bit about, you know, a woman who has greatly influenced or inspired you. I just kind of figured it could be a nice way to get us started, starting to talk about the importance of equal representation and the women who continue to inspire us, you know, today. Uh, do either of you feel passionately to start first? So I saw your question, uh, uh, Gabby, and um, and wh where I was taken when I saw the question was um, uh, who sort of began my feminist journey, I think. Um, and, um, and, and since we are honoring um, Women's History Month and feminism, uh, I felt compelled to talk about Mina Davis Caulfield. Um, she was my very first women's studies professor at San Francisco State University. I took her class, Anthropology of Women, and my life was forever altered, just forever altered. Um, it was the first time where I had been able to critically understand different inequalities of race, class, and gender, and understand my personal injuries as sort of being represented in a much grander scale in a planet dominated by patriarchy, mostly dominated by patriarchy. Um, and I, I think it gave me a sense of, um, of uh, sort of solidarity um, with, with, with women from, from around the, the planet who, who would also have um, endured um, various forms of oppression. Um, so it, it really, uh, it really, it really changed my life. And it also made me aware of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I, I was, I just loved Dr. Caulfield. So I loved her class. I loved, I loved her message. And I just came to know that this is what I wanted to do with my life. So it, um, it led me to graduate school, University of Iowa, where they had a really um, wonderful feminist uh, track in, in the graduate program there. Um, and I worked with wonderful people there, Marjorie Wolf, Ellen Lewin. Um, but I think I also uh, feel an incredible debt of gratitude to our earliest, our early feminist foremothers, um, people like Raina Rapp, um, Sherry Ortner, Michelle Rosaldo, who wrote those fabulous books called Toward an Anthropology of Women, um, and uh, really just um, altered, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know when feminism first enters people's consciousness exactly how it hits them, but it literally did just shift my entire perspective. Oh, you mean you know the? I feel I feel X Y Z about myself, um, not because it's natural to feel that way. It's because my society has told me that that this is what women do and this is what women should yeah, do. Yeah, it's a cultural norm. Yeah, yeah. So that that was truly a transformative um, a transformative moment for me. Um, and, and I'm so grateful to my, to my feminist foremothers for carving out this particular uh, domain of inquiry, making it a, um, a thing. You mm -hmm. can look at 
author. And it is, it is, it is an academic, scholarly, worthy of investigation. And we owe that, we owe our feminist foremothers a, a debt of gratitude for that. Um, but personally, I guess personally, I ask myself, I always ask myself, um, is what is what I'm doing in my life at this moment, will it make my grandmother and Ruth Bader Ginsburg proud? <laughs> and if the answer is yes to both of those, then I feel like I'm on the right track. <laughs> yes, yes. What a what a what what a wonderful soul. I'm sure your grandmother is, but also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, just such such a lovely soul that we lost from this earth too soon. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We are so lucky for you know all the women that have paved paved the way for us. Just incredible that they you know continue to inspire us to this day and yeah yes yes i totally agree yes <laughs> what about you so uh before we get into trouble michelle and i um, <laughs> sort of correct the fact that we are in the association for feminist anthropology oh okay because there is a National Women's Studies Association, which is the, you know, more the gender women's studies field. Mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, we are on board in uh, feminist anthropology. Yeah. But I was, I was really like kind of thrown for a loop by your question. Like, what, what if I don't, I mean, I feel like a little bit of this maybe generational difference, but, um, you know, I was a literature major. I mean, my bachelor's and my master's is in English actually. Um, and then I wanted to do a kind of, at that time, women's studies degree um, in a, I think from taking some uh, kind of a stodgy man who took theory in our uh, department, in my, my master's department. And um, I took my, but you know, it was very transformational and it was more <laughs> to um, read. I was just trying to remember like Florence Howe maybe it was in that, who works at co-education. I mean, it was that, it was a lot of literary criticism, but it helped us to read, you know, uh, understand, for example, the literatures that I grew up reading in a different way. It's more my route I took to anthropology. So, you know, I, I went to college in India. We didn't really have an anthro major there, but I was, um, I think, I mean, I like literature, but I think mostly I was an English major because I loved writing. I still love writing. Um, so, so, like many people since you know I found my way to much of feminism through through novels and writing and um, not maybe understanding I think now I have a better understanding of how popular culture you know common things we read actually shapes our idea of the world and so when I wanted to do something like women's studies um, I had these credits in English and I kind of worked my way through intro but the more time passes, the more I get actually interested in, in that part of it. Although it's fun to, you know, I write a good bit on popular culture or it's sort of fun to do. I just wanted to say that, you know, maybe in our life, we go towards feminism as much through disidentification as identification. Hmm. You know, I think hmm. so I grew up a lot around my maternal grandmother who, um, <laughs> should. I mean, I think I even felt as a child that she should uh, maybe have resisted the kind of um, pretty oppressive husband that she grew up around, you know, that she had, she had resources she could have called up upon, whether economic or social to use that, and she didn't. And I just think how much that shapes me, either my work on marriage or domestic violence, right? 
Um, but similarly, I think of people who, uh, you know, like a friend of my mother's who also was my teacher briefly, um, who I just saw that she was independent. She had a job, she resisted, she had, you know, she had, uh, um, she had this way of being badass that was very, like, <laughs> not, you know, but you know, I was when uh, Michelle was talking about um, um, RBG, for example, I thought, yeah, that's why I love her. So I mean, RBG, that's why I love her so much, right? Or like, uh, I I remember this was somewhere in graduate school reading about Ida B. Wells, right? Who, uh, you remember how at the suffrage march they said to her, oh yeah, the black women should march at the back. She's like, huh, really? And she there's a new book on her, actually. I was remembering this a few days ago. She's like, okay. Uh, I'll be there. And then she just went to the front and like joined the march. <laughs> so I just think there's something about these kind of social examples of folks who um, just were like, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. do another thing, you know? So yeah. There's the saying of well-behaved women, rare history. And I think that exactly. while it, that's a, a simplified version, it, the overall sentiment is definitely, um, <laughs> pretty accurate it's always the you know the people that are pushing the boundaries just like just like anywhere yes um, and I love I, this idea Srimati of like both identification and de-identification that that maybe there are things in our personal biography that would make us identify but then yeah. but then the de-identification is perhaps is perhaps like the thing that one would aspire to or or i am yeah you know like we that. often among us uh, friends and colleagues have this joke that the things that we obsessively research or even include in our teaching are like somewhere come from our pathologies <laughs> so, so you know we, like we'll be like can you it's like a game can you figure your way back to that yeah 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 so, yeah i love it i love it <laughs> Yeah. So I want to dive into a bit more about the AFA and uh, Srimati, you're currently the president. So could you kind no, of explain? No, not yet. Not yet. Oh, president-elect? Yes. Yes. Okay. Like, president-elect. Yes. Yes. I have six more months of breathing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'll take every day of it. I'm <laughs> not a second sooner. So you're the president-elect. Could you explain a bit more about, you know, some of the goals of the organization, what you guys work on, how you collaborate? As president-elect, I have been, you know, so I was, I should say, um, I mean, Michelle may actually have a better sense than me, but I'll just say briefly, I, I used to be on AFA probably about uh, seven or eight years ago as a, um, as a committee member, but um but uh, one of the things we struggled with that whatever almost a decade ago is that we wanted uh, more membership of folks that were entering graduate school. You know, that we mm. want more, you know, not just people from my generation and senior people. And I think somehow in this time that's happened actually, that we are at a moment, I don't know if we can tie this to either Me Too or BLM or, you know, various moments to decolonize and various uh, theoretical and social movement moments to decolonize anthropology. But um, I think all of those are very front and center mm -hmm. in AFA now, not that they were not there before, but we are very like, we, we want- Even more so. Yeah, we want to um, attend to forms of producing knowledge and 
so just to, so uh, just maybe to go back on that, you know, AFA is. Uh, do you know when it started, Michelle? Oh, I think it's about twenty-five years. Yeah, I think, you should. I think around there. Yeah. yeah, you should. You should look that yes. up. I was yeah. going to say I can do a fact check. Yeah. So, um, but you know, it's been a very classic. Actually, all those books that um, Michelle named, you know, uh, the um, writer book, the um, Women Culture Society. I'm not. Mm, yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, those are. There is a very uh, uh, kind of very important moment where feminist anthropology emerges as a scholarly field right yes and yes. and you know if you read those books you'll see that they, those books certain certainly are actually quite intersectional in their approach you know as in that they um have a, a, a certain amount of concerted attention to both race and class and of course they are global in their scope um and so we have now tried to, um, we want to keep that going. We want to be, I certainly want to be, I know Michelle also wants to be um, very much, you know, decolonizing in our knowledge production, right? Uh, in there. And so we have a new journal. It's in its second, year, I think. Um, and the editors have also been very attentive to that. So it's, it's a very important moment for us in astrology, I mean, in feminist astrology to have this new journal that's dedicated to that. And so it's yeah. important what comes up there, right? Like what, what's, what's in our name? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I totally uh, agree, Srimati. And I would, I would um, uh, just, just add a little saying that, that, that the journal is, um, was part of the reason why I got involved with, um, with the AFA, with the Association for Feminist Anthro. Um, the, the idea that we would have this, um, this, this important piece of scholarly production to highlight feminist uh, scholarship was, was just so exciting to me. And I'd say just overall, the mission is to um, um, acknowledge, honor, highlight feminist work. Um, we have a variety of uh, awards and scholarships that um, recognize um, uh, uh, the work of undergrads and graduate students and career anthropologists and um, uh, we have a book award, the, the Rosaldo Prize. Um, so it's, it, I think it, it really um, is, uh, I think Srimati is totally, I, I love the idea of decolonizing anthropology. I just, I just love that idea. And I think it's um, to highlight this, this ongoing work that, that feminists have, have, been, have been engaged in and like the new and exciting work coming from yeah from the from the from the up and coming feminists like yourself <laughs> yeah so yeah just one more thing to add is you know yes. I, think, I mean just to follow that up is i i do think the book prizes are super important you can see who who won in the last few years actually to see the the work that's represented actually the um, you know we have winners and we've actually had honorable mentions for both of those categories you yes. can really see the um, span of work in there but you know we are poised in the thing I wanted to emphasize is that we are poised in this moment in the last few years um, between rising social movements, you know, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. around um, around race and ethnicity, and actually also around class. Right? Mm -hmm. um, we are certainly in. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the 2016 election had anything to do or not, but certainly we are poised in a very important 
uh, moment around recognizing what, where, you know, how, um, how consent and pleasure and agency is to be determined around sexuality and around gender, right? Um, and we are certainly in this moment of recognizing the decolonization of anthropology in, in, in departments and elsewhere, right? Um, but uh, if I could add a fourth, um, I noticed that we were talking a lot about who are the, uh, who are the influential women in our lives. But we are also at a really important moment of destabilizing the category of women, right? Yes. Questioning mm -hmm. where gender lies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, what role has so? In many organizations that have had the word um, feminist in them, and in much of feminist work policy and otherwise, so retelling a history of women that have been excluded from the records. Yes. Um, and like I often call that a, re I mean, I'm not the only one. We often think of that as recovery projects, right? Like telling, mm. telling the history of X and Y. But mm. right now we are also actually inquiring about that, right? Like who did we count as women? Who mm. did we include? Who did it fall into the category of women but identified as such, right? Mm. Um, across various cultures, India certainly being an example, uh, there are all sorts of trans lives, for example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that we want to examine in terms mm -hmm. of genders, right? So, yeah. mm -hmm. um, so, so it's interesting to think how women as a category is actually something we would be, act, you know, we actively uh, are changing. Yeah. And that's something that I've explored a bit on the podcast as well with certain guests and is something I'm per personally very passionate about, you know, learning more about non-binary and trans people and how to better uh, address them, include them in research. And, you know, I think that's why maybe the term, you know, feminist would, is, is a better way to exemplify, you know, the type of efforts because then, you know, trans women or even non-binary people that, that want to participate, you can still be a feminist and be, you know, any, any iteration of gender that that you that you choose that you identify that you choose to identify with and I think that it's so important especially with you know some of these laws coming out you know trying to ban yeah. trans women from sports which I think is just horrifying and is just you know furthering inequalities it's something that I tweeted about I just think you know we can't <laughs> not to get too political but we just can't treat we can't treat treat trans people like some separate group that are that don't fit in and you know, just something we need to continue to continue to, and, you know, I'm so I'm glad you brought that up to continue to say, you know, mm -hmm. can we include them in these histories? How can we best represent them? How do they, how do they want to be represented? You know, what are the stories that they want to tell? I think you're right. It's so, so important. And hopefully, you know, maybe, you know, as AFA continues to grow, you'll be able to have some members that are, you know, from maybe more diverse or a non-traditional like gender background, or even like you oh, were they saying, are, they already yeah. Are, yeah. And people, come, people coming in, you know, that are undergraduates going into graduate school. I think, yeah, that's, I'm hoping that maybe some people from this episode will feel inspired to participate. I think it was a good point that you brought up to, you know, to further, yeah. I'm always trying to change my language because, you know, sometimes it's just those things that um, were, you know, drilled into us from a young age and just really trying to, uh, you know, change that. Even like there was a certain term that I was using it. I was referring to one of my guests and, you know, one of my African-American friends reached out to me to let me know that that might actually come across as a microaggression. And I was so appreciative because I'm always, you know, wanting to change 
my language to, to be better inclusive. So really happy to just be in a community where, especially anthropologists, I think where that's really nurtured and really talked about, like how can we change our cultural perceptions? But, you know, I want to I wanna hear what Michelle has to say about this, but I'm just going to say something in that regard, right? And I think that's particularly maybe a, something that as anthropologists we encounter, right? So in the U.S., we are at a moment, this sort of this pitched battle of thinking around language, right? And uh, how we are going to navigate our way through that, right? And then we go out to work wherever it is in the world, right? And people are not going to, you know, follow this kind of, like, you know, there are, uh, I mean, definitions of uh, <laughs> gender are not always going to be that fluid. People's, um, and you know, I mean, that's the conflict, right? That clearly in, in things that I'm working on, there are people who are, who, um, who's sort of uh, being as women defines their economic oppression also, you know, is a, is a, is a way Flows. So we have to keep that in mind, how we talk about people, how we bring that back into anthropology, you know. Uh, so if I go there and speak in the words that we might be more careful of in the classroom, I can't really, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so we are also constantly as anthropologists and in other disciplines in that process of translation, right? And in the process of seeking contextual knowledge, right? How, for example, how just gender-based violence is defined in, through different categories and different understandings. Like Michelle works on health, right? You know, like what constitutes health. Did you want to add? Gabby, I appreciate so much your openness to um, alter your vocabulary. And, um, and I, I approach this with my students and with colleagues. Um, in a way of, I, I try to be, um, I, I wanna start with a little bit of compassion. Like we've all learned the rules in a certain way and we may not have had the training in the background to know exactly what words kind of work better. Mm -hmm. So I, um, um, I had this wonderful speaker uh, in, in one of my classes say, you know, if one of your questions is a little funky, I'll just help you rephrase it. <laughs> I'll just kind of help you rephrase it. Um, and, and I kind of take that approach with, um, with my students and, and with colleagues who might say something, you know, a little um, like, oh, oh that's yeah. kind of making my eye blink there. Um, mm -hmm. I might kind of want to start with a place of um, at least trying to be um, compassionate about yeah. like, we have these rules we we mm -hmm. learned them and let's try to let's try to work together to to, to change them and yeah just for example Srimati, i was in a meeting um and we were talking about this policy this policy and i don't want to get into the details of it but one of my colleagues said um it has to do with with uh reimbursement for for research mm -hmm. and um and we now have to ask people if they are if they have a social security number and you might imagine that this is going to create problems for folks who are undocumented. And one of my colleagues said, well, what about for people who were illegal? And I just put a little quiet chat in the little chat. No human being is illegal. <laughs> the phrase is undocumented. undocumented. And I was so pleased. He was like, thank you, Michelle. I will try to do better. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That, that's all, that's mm -hmm. all we need to yeah. try to do. 
in, in our, in our lives, you know, <laughs> like you said, coming at it from a place of compassion. I like to think I have good intentions. So I like to know that there are sweet people who are kind of checking me because we all need to be checked sometimes. No one's yeah. perfect. Yeah. We all need that, that check in. We're, we're all learning. Yeah. We are but how, learning. No, but my question is how does this work when we are in the field? Yes. Like, are we going around? Oh. You know, yeah. That's a more. I mean, sometimes we are right. Sometimes mm-hmm. we, people we are pushing back. Other times we are observing. Right? Yeah, oh, that's a very good point. And also, I feel like sometimes, you know, we'll we'll read a novel or we'll read an excerpt where not set in the US, right? Set in a different context where there are entirely different terms of referring to things. And so, you know, part of our job in training people in anthropology and in in feminist studies really um, is to learn to understand those in their cultural terms, right? And not just in terms of our language. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say, Srimati, I I work with very conservative Pentecostal. That's true. Evangelical folks. Yeah. Um, So I I really take the position of much more of an observer. Just Mm -hmm. I'm I'm observing. I am taking it in and sometimes going, holy crap. Um, But again, it's like, yeah. Quite often, that is my internal dialogue. But um, mm-hmm. but um, you know, as 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 a, as an, a supposedly as a supposedly outside observer, I I I am listening to their understandings of what how they understand gender and women mm-hmm. yeah. and the problems of the world. Um, because you know, in in Pentecostals are trying in their in their specific way yeah. to address the problems of the world mm-hmm. and to understand the questions of the world. Yeah, in there, and yes. it just so yeah. happens to be through religion. Yes, yes. Yeah, like how do you hear their worldview, right? Without even yes. like finding the eighteen things wrong with it. From- <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, it's a really interesting skill to learn. And, you know, I'm sure for both of you who have spent quite a bit of time in the field, it's your understanding is developed. And, you know, I look forward to getting back out in the field, doing more, more things. Although my, my interests tend to be a bit more archaeological, so less living populations. But, you know, sometimes that you're, in, you're involved with the community that you're working in, you know, depend, depending on what you're right. doing. But um i want to switch gears a little bit even but, though this... but can i can i just add yeah. one thing i i'm very glad you mentioned the word archaeology because i totally forgot to say this because here's the thing <laughs> right everything we've been michelle and i are both cultural anthropologists right yeah. but feminist anthropology is a four-field area right yes just like other areas in anthropology and there is incredible work done by feminist archaeologists right mm-hmm. yes like really some of the most paradigm shifting work is done by both biological anthropologists and archaeologists yeah you know that's i would agree i mean we would love to hear from involve more students involve more scholars have feminist anthropology be a lot more for free as as for field as we can make it so the other four, fourth field is the linguistic anthropologist right mm-hmm. i'm working um, to get a linguistic anthropologist on the show Yay. Yeah. Awesome. 
Awesome. Yes. Because, but you know, there's like the work on, I, I, I have, in fact, I've been working with a colleague who's a linguist. Um, and uh, I mean, he's, he's a scholar of gender and sexuality in linguistics and, and, and linguistics. But, uh, you know, through him, I've come to know actually that it's a, it's a really abundant and, you know, like a really huge field in there. Yeah. So I think for the, uh, for, you know, um, archaeology and biological anthropology, we don't often see that much of it in gender studies, particularly. So right. I really like to see more of that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's still, you know, it's very valuable to understanding the questions. Oh, yeah. All right. So Dr. Ramirez, how do you approach teaching your students about feminist issues in relation to the broader subject of anthropology? Mm-hmm. Great, great question, uh, Gabby. And, um, and I think that um, Srimati and I were talking about this briefly before that, that feminist and gender studies are, are um, very interdisciplinary in nature. Um, but I think uh, that anthropology has a particularly powerful way of um, de- destabilizing truth. And, um, and, and one, one thing that, that anthropology, uh, that we learn from anthropology is that so many of these structures that we understand to be natural or divinely ordained truths are in fact cultural. And the way that we know this is we look at other societies, we look at other societies' practices, and we understand that our, um, speaking of gender, our our gender binary, it does in fact just not maintain cross-culturally. And when we learn that, we then can kind of say, hmm, how then does this gender bind? What what interests are served in perpetuating and policing this gender binary? Um, what power structures are um, are kind of consolidated if we if we only have a gender binary? Who does who does it benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I didn't mention this before, but I teach at a health and science focused university, the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, where I call my home, my academic home, and it's a wonderful place. Um, I find I'm I'm really uh, quite fortunate to be able to talk about these issues with future healthcare um, and science professionals, um, how they can incorporate ideas about gender and gender equality in their future professions as healthcare providers and scientists. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I'm sure that your students, you know, really enjoy like your perspectives. Do you have a certain favorite class to teach or maybe like a module within a class, like a certain topic that, you know, really like fires you up and you're so excited to share with your students? Mm. Well, um, I, whatever class I'm teaching, whether it's an introduction to anthropology, um, uh, I teach a class called Gender, Race, and Justice. I just developed Mm. that class and I I was just, and I taught it for the first time in fall 2020, after the (laughs) second of 2020. Um, it was it was quite something, um, but pretty much any Ramirez class is going to have a gender section and a race section where we talk about about inequalities of race, class, and gender. Um, no matter no matter what class you take, and, and and some of my students have taken multiple classes with me, and it's like 
sorry, Ramirez <laughs> <laughs> show again. But again, yeah. if this is the only class that they're that they're ever going to take with, mm-hmm. with the only anthropologist on campus, then I feel yeah. like I feel duty bound. I feel duty bound to impart this knowledge on on my students. <laughs> definitely and I'm sure I'm sure it's like appreciated especially like you said if you're the only anthropologist on campus I'd be taking every class every class with you I'm sure you have some students like that oh I have a couple professors at UCSB that they just have they must be tired of me at this point point. (laughs) yeah um so directing back to Dr. Basu um there was one of your current your newer projects that like immediately a lot of your work is fascinating, don't get me wrong, but one that kind of just like immediately caught my attention and I'd love to hear more about was your essay entitled Detectives Are Born Not Made, India's First Woman Detective. I mean, first of all, the title alone is so catchy. I think anyone is like, oh, I need to read that. But, you know, I'm I'm so curious. Tell, tell us all about it. So, uh, I'm just going to back up here to say, actually, I was, uh, you know, I was supposed to embark on a uh, fellowship to do more um, field work on that, which is completely mm. paused, but, um, you know, until they give us the green light to go ahead, but somewhere yeah. in the course of next year, I'm actually going to um, interview some more, but I start, I want to do this project on, um women private detectives, mostly in India, because my, you know, because, uh, you know, I've done other work on there. I'm familiar with the literature. Mm-hmm. And this again is back to my interdisciplinary roots uh, because I wanted to kind of contrast the, its representations in literature and maybe, and maybe uh, film and TV um, with uh, the daily work of detectives, right? So I'm kind of interested in it. I'm really interested in it as, um, as a fan, even of yeah. the genre of fiction, right? And it actually came out of the moment when I started working on these anti-feminist groups, that I always felt a little bit nervous about it. I was like, "Come on, this has been enough years of working on, you know, um, oppression and violence. I really like need to do something that I thoroughly enjoy." Yeah. So, um, but what I wanted to tell you was what's funny about that is that. A lot of my friends who worked in these other fields with me said, you know, you are deluding yourself because much of that, much of the work that private detectives do is not like what we imagine Columbo and Sherlock Holmes and whatever do. Much of their work is around managing marriage and, and managing and managing mm. like adultery and the sexuality of children. So of course they were right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So it's funny to see that actually studying women detectives is a is a way of studying how gender and sexuality are managed, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm also because I'm also an anthropologist of the state. Um, I'm very interested in what it means to be a private detective because in, yeah. uh, and increasingly more so. So if you look at histories of detective work in uh, either the U.S. or in uh, or in um, England, for example, I'm, I have gathered a stack of books on other countries that I hope to go through more. Um, many of them are actually in the context of union busting, in the context of um, rounding up on doc- undocumented people to find up for Michelle's example, um, mm-hmm. that they actually did not do very uh, noble work. And so the creation of the fictional detective is actually a kind of a, a 
our imagination of a certain kind of work because basically private detectives do not usually intervene in crimes mm. intervene more in social web so i'm really interested to see how that's emerging in india i had i had already targeted looking at um, places where you know there are women only firms like what do they offer what do they um uh, but and so the essay you refer to is part of these preliminary interviews i did but i interviewed two women uh, out of like a not very many two women who claim to be india's first women detective oh, oh. That's a cool. What a wonderful project, Srimati. What a, what a fun project. Yeah. And how and how ironic that it ends up intersecting with yeah. Your, yeah. your work. It's, funny. it's meant to be. That's probably you exactly. Know, just, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's how I'm going to amuse myself as I write about the anti-feminism. <laughs> oh, I think I think that's probably a good uh yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm curious, I, and you might not have much data on it, but how are, you know, for example, like in India, how are women private detectives respected and gone to maybe differently than their male counterparts? Or is it, how, how are you kind of seeing how that is? So I don't actually know, right? I don't okay. know. So of the, the essay that you refer to is a person who's, she's a one woman show, really, you mm -hmm. know. She's like a, she's an entrepreneur. She has like, she trains people. She, um, she's a one-born show. Other people, I've, other women detectives I've interviewed often work as part of large agencies, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things about, um, I mean, I'm very amused by the fact that various people pointed out to me that to be a detective, you have to look like as inconspicuous as possible. You yeah. have in as Indians would say, you have to look like an auntie. You have to be in the street corner so that people will talk to you. So, so I do think that they have a great deal of social capital to offer here. You know, um, they are hired in certain kinds of ways to do uh, jobs. The the other person who I interviewed, who was uh, who said she was uh, India's first woman detective, is now a publisher. But she was a PhD student, and she began <laughs> like. She began writing detective stories as, you know, to make a living. And um, eventually she moved into, they hired, the, a firm hired her into looking into some of the cases. So, out of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I wanted to um, also ask you both, you know, what I always like to give ways for our listeners to kind of further engage with the content that we're presenting. So maybe if you have any, we discussed a couple of feminist books, but, you know, are there, does the AFA have any events coming up? Are there any, you know, readings that we can link to get people further or just any things in general that you would both like to bring up that are related to, you know, the topics that we've been discussing that may, you know, interest our listeners further? So our brand new hot off the press thing is that there are writing groups for people. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you yes. know, we want people to be, you know, especially in pandemic times when we are doing a lot of things we want to do on Zoom, we are hoping that it will be a, a great venue for um, both graduate students and for junior faculty to get together. Um, so I'm very grateful for the folks who put that together. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we'll either have some form of a conference or uh something else in its place like michelle what all am i forgetting i know we're doing oh we have a facebook page and a oh, twitter fun. feed 
that has um, our updates. Um, we have um, announcements about different um, uh, activities going on and book, uh, book awards and uh, works highlighted. So yeah, definitely have your listeners check out our Facebook page and our, and our Twitter feed at FEMANTH, F-E-M-A-N-T-H, at FEMANTH. There we go. Our uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter handle. Our website is sort of in the process of, of being updated. So I think I would recommend folks go to the Facebook and the, um, and the Twitter feed um, rather than, than the website right now for the most up-to-date information. And I'm so glad you mentioned the mentoring activities, um, Srimati. These writing, the, the, these writing groups came, came out of an effort to um, really figure out what kind of mentoring um, the AFA could get involved with in our in our community, and um, we've had a great team of folks working on these uh, uh, workshops that I think will really be a wonderful collaborative opportunity for for, for folks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a great, great resource, especially just because I think we're all stuck <laughs> in the same space that we're stuck in. Sometimes you need that extra bit of like motivation to get writing going and with libraries not being open. I know a lot of people at UCSB are desperately missing the library, so... <sighs> Oh, yeah. the library was my was my refuge. Thank you everyone for listening. It was such a pleasure to interview both of these women and I'll have all of their stuff linked below. So I hope you enjoyed the episode.